0: there are students who take my course um, independent distant learning that is they don't see me they hear the lectures on a, on a cd and uh... some of the students say that i am better heard and not seen um, but maybe today you were going to hear see me but not hear me anyhow i was saying that ted's uh, selection of the music hear my cry oh god don't turn your face away from me you know hear my heart um, is uh, it's so perfect for for, uh, for the message that I want to try to bring, and I, he does such a great job all the time, and, and also the praise team, and and uh, and uh, Joanna and Sherry, and and, uh, um, and, and also the extra, and both of you all, just phenomenal. Thank you. So, how many times have you heard a sermon on the Ten Commandments lately? Um, but I've got an inspiration. Uh, I think it might be might, might be meaningful f- for you. I hope so. And, and I'd be interested in seeing what you think and discussing it uh, up with the cookies and the coffee afterwards. The headline for the whole Ten Commandments is Exodus uh, 22, verse 2. Is it up there? Yeah. I am the Lord, Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house. Did you notice that when they projected the thing that was uh, pre-planned beforehand, came from somewhere else, they left out this verse? But this verse is the headline. This verse tells us the theme for the whole of the Ten Commandments. It's really important. It's really crucial. And I'm going to spend half of my sermon on that one verse. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend as much time on all the rest of the verses. So, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The name of God throughout the Old Testament is translated the Lord, but it's the Hebrew um, Yahweh. Um, But what does Yahweh mean? We've got to get that straight in order to get the theme straight. The name of God is revealed in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6. Moses was keeping his father-in-law's flock there up on the mountain. Um, He was just minding his own business when that bush, the burning bush started burning. It wasn't Moses' idea that this would happen, but God spoke to him. And God said, here I am. I think that's a clue to the meaning of the name Yahweh. Here I am. I am here. And Yahweh said to him, I have seen the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them. But Moses said, Well, who am I that I'm going to go to the Pharaoh and then go to the people and say this? They're going to ask me, What's your name? God said to Moses, say this, I am, or I am who I am. Say, Yahweh has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my name for all generations. Scholars don't know where this name Yahweh comes from. They can't trace it back and figure out, oh, that's the meaning of it. And so there are lots of different possible suggestions. I think the best one comes from the... Um, Old Testament theologian Walter Eich wrote, the most natural interpretation remains, I am. I am present. This makes perfect sense in Moses' context. I'm really and truly pr- present, ready to help and to act, demonstrably, demonstrably and immediately present and active, near at hand and mighty to control. Exodus chapters three and six where the name of Yahweh is revealed, uh, are so important that they actually are three different strands braided together. Um, And I think we can get a clue for the meaning of Yahweh by sort of unbraiding those strands and asking the question, are there some themes that go across all three strands? And there are. All three strands say Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all got in a jam, like Abraham was about to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And God delivered him, gave the ram. Um, Jacob was in a jam. After 14 years hiding out away from home, he was coming back, and his brother Esau could kill him. And God delivered him. I suggest that I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Suggest God, who makes a covenant... A promise and delivers on his promise and delivers from the jam um, that we're in five times in these two chapters God tells Moses he will be faithful to his covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob five times God tells Moses I will be with you I will deliver you from the oppression of the Egyptians so we conclude that God's name means I will be present with you, faithful to my covenant, with you, and I will deliver you. Five times also, God, God we, we are told that God experiences the suffering of the oppressed with compassion. Quote, their cry for help rose up to God, and God heard their groaning and God heard their cry on account of their taskmasters indeed I know their sufferings I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt so God's name also means I am present to hear the cries of the oppressed and to see the misery and to know their sufferings and their oppression that's why throughout the Psalms and the prophets we pray that God will hear our cries and see our suffering, and will be present to deliver. For example, Psalms 3, 4, 5, and 11, I cry aloud to the Lord, and He answers me from His holy hill. Rise up, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Answer me when I call, O God of my right. Be gracious to me, hear my prayer. Give ear to my words, O Lord, give heed to my sighing. Listen to the sound of my cry. My King and my God, for to you I pray, O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed. So God's name also means I am present to hear the cries of the oppressed and see their misery and know their sufferings with compassion. And yet one more theme that we see in these three Braided strands. Moses removes his shoes, for this is holy ground. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord is mighty and majestic. Holy, both in the sense of having compassion for the oppressed to lift them up. And also in the sense of having the might to deliver them. So you see, in the 19th chapter of Exodus, right before the Ten Commandments, um, after God had delivered the people from Israel and their slavery in Egypt, Moses went up to God on the mountain. There was thunder and lightning as well as a thick cloud on the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln while the whole mountain shook violently. This is really the revelation of the majesty of God. God has might. God is majestic. So putting all this together, look at the prophet Isaiah just for a moment. Prophet Isaiah repeatedly addresses God as the Holy One of Israel, our Redeemer. God's holiness is seen in God's redeeming activity, redeeming Israel. You remember Isaiah's call in Isaiah 60, he's in the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and how am I going to be in God's presence? I'm a man of unclean lips and God sends the seraphim and the coal and, and, and cleanses his lips and makes, makes Isaiah a participant in God's calling to go and participate in the redemption of people he brings Isaiah unclean into his presence and redeems him Isaiah says the holiness of God is not that God stays separate from people who are unredeemed. The holiness of God is God's compassion, God's hearing our cry, God's coming to us and delivering us, bringing in the Gentiles, bringing in the eunuchs, bringing in the unclean. And when Jesus proclaims the coming of the kingdom of God, Jesus is always citing Isaiah. and Jesus is bringing in the outcasts and the lepers and all kinds of folks with shame. Um, Jesus is in the train of Isaiah. Or look at the prophet Jeremiah. Did not your father do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is this not to know me, says the Lord. That's who God is, the one who does redeeming, delivering justice for the poor and the needy. And to do that kind of justice is comes out of knowing God. Therefore, the Old Testament professor Brevard Childs is right. God is present and known where the oppressed are freed and the naked are covered. He's citing Isaiah 15. Fifty-eight, And the commandments, the Ten Commandments, were not arbitrary stipulations which had unwittingly assumed an importance. Rather, the Ten Commandments reflect the essential character of God himself. The prologue, what I'm calling the headline, makes absolutely clear that the commands that follow are integrally related to God's act of self-revelation Yahweh who hears the cries and who delivers we are delivered from legalism and self-righteousness if we interpret each commandment not as a legalistic rule resting simply on an authoritarian understanding of an authoritarian God they are commands based on a deliverant, delivering compassionate God I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt out of the house of slavery that's the headline so we should interpret each command guided by our prayerful relationship with God who cares so let's look at the first two commandments quickly you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make for yourself an idol you shall not bow down to them or worship them the ancient culture didn't think that those idols were literally gods. They thought those idols pictured the character of God. And what we're being told in the Bible is those idols do not picture what God is like. The way to get the picture of what God is like is to understand that God has heard our cries and has acted to deliver us. God is the Redeemer, the Deliverer, who who hears and who is present and who delivers and keeps God's covenants, God's commands. It isn't adequate to make God into an infinite, abstract, universal something. God gets particular God hears the cries. God comes in His presence. God speaks to Moses. He says to Moses, I've got a task for you. We're going to deliver the people. There is mystery in God. So Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. But the character of God is hearing the cries and bringing the deliverance. So these two commandments point to the headline in verse 2. And so does the third command. It clearly refers to the name of Yahweh. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, Yahweh, your God. As Jesus interprets this command, it's about swearing by heaven, heaven was a stand-in for God, or by some other holy thing, to convince someone you were telling them the truth, or you were going to keep this promise, when in fact you weren't. You were using God's name, not to deliver, but to oppress to deceive, to seek your own ends. It was using the name of the Lord who cares especially about the vulnerable in order to make somebody vulnerable trust you and become a victim of deceit. Yahweh hears the cries of the vulnerable. So Baptist Old Testament scholar Walter Harrelson explains, quote, the Hebrew expression has often been translated, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain with the meaning to treat Yahweh's name lightly Harrelson says I do not find any occurrences in the Hebrew Bible clearly supporting such a translation the term means quote misusing the power inherent in the personal name for God to do harm against others it prohibits using Yahweh's name to invoke curses upon another person or to conjure up evil spirits by the use of the power-laden name, or otherwise to take advantage of one's knowledge of the powerful personal name of God. The concern throughout is hearing the cries of the vulnerable and delivering them. So the fourth command, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, when I was a boy, I, you know, learned that means go to church every Sunday. Which is, I'm in favor of. (laughs) Um, But that's actually not the emphasis here. It's about seeing the need and hearing the cry of the vulnerable, paying special attention to the needs of your children, your slaves, your livestock, and the powerless immigrants. Quote, You shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your livestock. Nor, nor the immigrant within your towns, the alien within your gates. That's the immigrant I'm translating. I mean, that's an immigrant. That's what it is. As Harrelson writes, as a day set apart for Yahweh as holy to the Lord, its basic observance was negatively put. Don't do any kind of labor. Exodus 23:12 confirms this inter- interpretation stating the reason unmistakably 6 days you shall do your work but on the 7th day you shall rest so that your ox and your donkey may have relief and your homeborn slave and the resident the immigrant may be re- refreshed the reason is rest for the weary especially the powerless weary most vulnerable to exploitation and in Deuteronomy 5.15 the other version of the Ten Commandments we have it says remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day slaves should get some rest too fifth honor your father and your mother now I first learned this when I was a boy in Sunday school and it probably meant, do whatever mommy and daddy say. But in fact, the Ten Commandments were first given primarily to adults. And their parents were getting old and feeble, and they didn't have any social security system. They depended on the us hearing it to care for them. You remember Jesus interprets it this way. The Pharisees said, you should take the money that you set aside for your elderly parents and call it korban. And that means the money should go to the temple and we get to use it. And your parents, of course, then are left destitute. What what this commandment is saying is, be concerned with the vulnerable, the elderly parents. They really depend on us, not only for our financial care, but also love and support and presence my parents were in a um, nursing home, rest home, whatever, in uh, Minneapolis and um, my sister and I went regularly to visit them, we would take turns, we would visit every month Um, and I played, when dad was 93 years old I played bridge with him and uh, you know, two others, two women who were there Um, and um, one of the women who, she was my partner and we skunked them, she was terrific Um, she said my son i've been here seven years and my son has come to visit me once and i notice that you are here regularly visiting your parents and i think that is so important that's what this commandment's about sixth you shall not kill can there be any question about the potential victims of murder being vulnerable and needing deliverance, some in our church who know this personally. Um, you need the hearing of God's love. You need the healing that can come through worship together and experiencing forgiveness. You need you need you need the deliverance from the pain of, of murder. Um, too much of that happens in our country. This um, Tuesday, the Los Angeles Times front page had, a, had a, um, an article saying the death, they just had a, a state commission on the death penalty, and it's, it's broken. Um, Ninety-eight people have been found, who were given death row, but then they were found they weren't guilty and were, were let go. Um, we know that it's un, un, unjust. No wealthy person in the history of our country has received the death penalty there's a racial bias there's an economic bias there are errors that happen and once you're put to death you can't correct the error of course so this I don't have time to talk about the whole ethics of the death penalty I've published a book on it and I could do more in the New Testament the death penalty happens I mean you know there is the stoning of Stephen um... there is the stoning of the woman caught in adultery until David until Jesus interrupts it there is um, there is the, uh, all the martyrs who were martyred in the, in the book of Revelation. Uh, Paul himself participated in the stoning of, of Christians until he repented and, and, and turned uh, against doing that. And there's Jesus' own crucifixion. Every single death penalty in the New Testament is unjust. Um, New Jersey has just canceled its death penalty. Illinois has said there's so many errors, they just, just took everybody off death row. Um, there is a change happening. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery. This is surely a commandment designed to deliver the vulnerable from victimization. When someone commits adultery, there's the, there are two families that are victims. Um, two couples that are victims and also the person himself uh, former president Bill Clinton uh, can testify to this um, that, um, there is much hurt that comes from that anyone who has been the victim of adultery by his or her spouse knows the pain of this breach of deep covenant this betrayal of trust and loyalty Old Testament scholar John Durham provides an additional grounding based on this commandment as a breach of covenant with Yahweh as well as a breach of covenant with one's spouse the adultery was considered a serious breach of the covenant relationship with Yahweh and that's shown both by the bluntness of the references to it and by the severity of the penalties inflicted for it end of quote Eighth, you shall not steal this may have been initially a prohibition against um, kidnapping Um, um the penalty for kidnapping was the death penalty, um, but for stealing it was not property. Uh, property was, was. The Bible is clear that persons are more valuable than than property. You may have also seen in the paper this week this uh, guy in Texas, in Pasadena, Texas, who saw his neighbor's house being burglarized and called 911. And he said, "I'm going to go out and shoot the guy." And 911 said, "No, don't shoot him. We're coming." But he went and shot and killed two burglars, um, and he just had his trial. He was let off this week. I don't know about Texas, but in the Bible, people are more important than property, um, and they show that by the by the, the, the by the the penalty there. Um, we will soon have burned up almost. Oh, it's uh, interesting. On the slide, did you see quickly about? Um Not stealing, they put up an internal revenue service up there. Just last night, Dot Dot and I finally got around to doing our income taxes. Am I having pangs of guilt for... (laughs) I don't think I'm stealing. But I also wanted to point out another kind of stealing. We soon will have burned up almost all the oil and gasoline that was a one-time gift of God millions of years ago. In three generations, from my parents to my, my kids, we will have burned up pretty well all this oil. Um, there, there, there's a woman a nice, nicely dressed woman that Exxon puts on the television with an ad saying all we've got to do to solve this problem is drill more which means, of course means use up the little bit that's left so the next generations won't have any at all how can we have how can we be comfortable with such stealing from the future generations it could have been spread out so a lot of people would get the benefit if we had done conservation so don't just think only of those thieves (laughs) think of us when we think of this commandment when you have something stolen from you you're victimized it's the vulnerable that God is concerned about those victims of theft ninth you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor the context is a legal trial and your neighbor is up for trial Your neighbor neighbor is able to be unjustly victimized if you bear false witness against him or her. This commandment, too, is about delivering the vulnerable from oppression. And tenth, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. To focus your desire on how you can steal these persons and possessions from your neighbor is to plan how to victimize the vulnerable. It's to violate the very core nature of the Lord, Yahweh who will hear their cries, come to deliver them and bring you to judgment." So in conclusion, the Ten Commandments are not arbitrary commands. They're not just some authoritarian declaration. They are... nor are they adequately divided as, you know, the first few are are vertical and then the last ones are, are horizontal on two tablets. The first commands about God is about God who cares for justice and deliverance. And the commandments about justice for those, you know, who are stolen from or committed adultery against and so on are in our relationship to God who cares for them. It's all one unity. Under one headline, God who hears the cries. They are not vertical and horizontal. They are vertizontal and horizontal. Remember that. It's a unity. My son Bill, our son Bill, tells us that on The Daily Show, John Stewart interviewed a politician from the religious right who was pushing to get the government to put the Ten Commandments in courthouses and schools and thus having the government establish a religious presence there. Stewart asked the politician if he could name the Ten Commandments that he was championing. The man said, uh, you mean right here? Yeah, right here. Can you name them? You know, do you know what they are? I said, well, um, well and he named one. One out of ten he could name. So when some politician wants to put the Ten Commandments in a government building, I suggest we ask one question. Whether that politician is an advocate of an ideology or a party that stands for deliverance of the weak and vulnerable from oppression by the privileged and the authoritarian, Or whether that politician is an advocate of an ideology or a party that stands for the privileged, the wealthy, and the authoritarian in their victimizing of the poor, the immigrants, the weak. In sum, the Ten Commandments are unified by their heading the character of the Lord Yahweh, whose name means I'm present with you to hear the cries of the oppressed and see their misery and know their sufferings with compassion. I will be faithful to my covenant with you, and I will deliver you. The Lord is mighty and majestic, holy, both in the sense of having compassion for the oppressed and delivering them, and also in the sense of having the might to deliver them. Do you know what the name Jesus means? Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. It's the Hebrew which means Yahweh delivers. And that's what this sermon is saying. And that's who Jesus is. The revelation of God, God's caring for us. The table that we are about to serve, to be served from, is the table of Jesus, the Lord, the Deliverer. He gave his body for others. He gave his blood as a new covenant. When you eat this bread and drink this grape juice, you are accepting his caring, his deliverance right inside of you as it goes down feel it you are committing yourself to keep this covenant to hear the cries to see the need to act to deliver those who are weak and those who are vulnerable the purpose of our church is to make followers of Jesus who love, worship and serve God this is a God we can love and we can worship and we can serve The Ten Commandments are about the God who cares and who delivers. The Lord's Supper is about this same God, revealed in Jesus, who cares and delivers. Our participating is our committing ourselves to participate in God's hearing the cries, loving, caring, delivering, and keeping covenant. Amen.